what we're going to focus on today are BTK inhibitors that are approved uh, for use uh, in either CLL or other diseases. Well, at the end of my talk, I'll talk a little bit about mm -hmm. other BTK inhibitors that are uh, coming um, for use in CLL. So my present my this is this is my presentation disclosure and I recognize this morning but I couldn't change my slide that I have a patent on toenail clippers um, that uh, it could pay out in 2018 uh, but I given that I'm in New, given that I'm in New York City and I want to be sure I disclose absolutely everything that I'm doing like with the, I'm sorry that's the novelty it, it gets both and, and I can use it on my schnauzers, too. So how many people in the audience have heard of this drug called ibrutinib? Anybody? All right. So not a surprise. What, what a, an amazing class of drugs. So ibrutinib is a potent, irreversible BTK inhibitor. And it's, it's, it's a neat drug. It, like most of the others that we're going to talk about in this class today, in that it binds to a target that's very, very important for, you know, in CLL called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. It's very potent. And it, it, across uh, you know, the gamut of low-grade B-cell malignancies, so say, and several, you know, several other indications, including chronic graft-versus-host disease, where it's approved, and ALL where it's being tested, and as an immune modulation agent, it has activity. It's an oral drug, which makes things, you know, which makes things much easier for our patients. They don't have to come in and out of the office. Unfortunately, as a first-in-class drug, though, it, is, you know, it has several alternative targets that, for those of us you know, who see, those of you in the audience who see solid tumors and as well as hematologic cancers, as, you know, as general oncologists or say, it, you know, it hits EGFR, um, which in, so this drug can cause an EGFR rash, and in some patients, and uh, you know, and diarrhea and other things that are associated with some of these alternative uh, targets. The initial phase one study with this was performed really in a set, you know in a broad group of patients, and we really identified in that study though that about two thirds of patients responded. And it fostered, it fostered a um, genesis of investigation through a big phase, you know, phase 1B2 study in CLL that we have the most follow-up on. And I sort of tried to focus on new things. And, you know, we have a lot of follow-up on this initial study. So in 132 patients, 101 who had prior therapy, 31 who had um, no therapy, you know, we can sort of infer what's going to happen to our patients as we treat them long-term. And to me, we know this drug works in most patients short-term. Being able to infer what's going to happen long-term as you're counseling the patients is very helpful. So when you look, when you look at the, you know, the relapse patients, most, all of these patients received 420 or 840. The results, you know, so there's no reason to increase the dose higher than 420 in CLL. The results were the similar. And there may be a... a, a a small hint that there was a little bit more side effects at the 840 milligram dose. And with this, with this class of drugs, we know, and we'll hear about the PI3 kinase inhibitors, you see lymphocytosis early on, and this is something, you know, this is something you ignore. And, you know, using this, you know, agent in the upfront, 
or the relapse setting, you know, we see approximately 90% of patients across the board respond. And as we treat patients longer, and this is from this initial study where we have almost seven years of follow-up, you know, we see in the untreated group, you know, the complete response rate going up, say, the partial you know, as the partial response goes down. And that lymphocytosis that I talked about with the class of drugs goes, you know, it goes away with time. That's represented in a 3% at the bottom. This is response. Really what we care about is how these patients are doing long term. And this makes, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words in the treatment naive. And again, this was a, a small number of patients, but very few patients have progressed and most of these patients, um, you know, are alive. They've not died of other causes. Um, and we, we still see the drop in relapse and refractory patients over time. But what's important to remember is most of these patients had a median of four prior therapies, uh, you know, some as high as 13, and most of these patients would be dead had, we, you know, had they not gone on to this drug. So these were, the, these were patients that had received a lot of therapy. Um, What's, what's important and, and, you know, is that when we look at the toxicity associated with this over time, most things go down except hypertension. You know, and you, you, we do see atrial fibrillation, you know, the risk that continues with time. It's slow, but in most studies, you know, I'll show, it, you know, it's 10 to 15 percent. Yeah. This led to the Resonate study, which was a phase three study they compared it, uh, ibrutinib to ofatumumab in relapsed patients. And, say, you know, the outcome of this is really not that important. At this point, it got it, the drug approved. It, 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 say, ibrutinib beat the pants off of ofatumumab in terms of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival. But why I put this slide in today is because it's one of the few studies, even though there's short follow-up, where you can really look at the toxicity in a relapsed refractory patient. And you know, during the time period that patients were on ofatumumab versus atrial fibrillation, and again, I'm sorry, versus ibrutinib, there was a higher frequency of atrial fibrillation, grade, you know, low-grade bleeding, rash, board vision. All, you know, so so this, this sort of tells us these are side effects associated with ibrutinib. You know, and, and interestingly, you know, we have our positive control that we didn't see any infusion events on, you know, on ibrutinib, whereas we did see a good proportion on ofatumumab. Um, all of these, uh, these studies really led to the question, well, can we move this to the upfront setting, and is this going to, is this going to have an impact? And, you know, the Resonate 2 tested this question looking at, you know, looking at ibrutinib versus um, Coambisil, horrible comparator, horrible comparator. We'll never be a comparator again, hopefully, for C, you know, as a as a therapy for CLL. And 17P patients were uh, not allowed to go on the study. And again, to nobody's surprise, Abrutinib really, you know, again, beat Coambisil uh, very definitively. We saw the same toxicities, uh, you know, in that in this randomized trial of atrial fibrillation and diarrhea. So, so cardiovascular effects, we do see, not, not that frequently, but they do occur uh, with ibrutinib. This looks at the long-term, this looks at the long-term progression-free survival, um, you know, and I want to call attention to, to something, to that corner, you know, the, the corner wording. Of the patients that went off ibrutinib, 12% went off due to an SAE. Only 3% went off due to progressive disease. And, and, and still, these are, you know, say, the true progressors 
not people that where you stop the drug and their disease comes up, but progressors on this study where they progress on drug is very uncommon in the, in the, in the untreated setting. Again, making the point, same, you know, you know, same toxicities, but you know, what, we, what we see over time is, you know, again, that April, the, you know, say a fair, high, a fair frequency of grade three and four hypertension and you know, you know, atrial fibrillation. So you do, there are a few side effects that you do see continuing with time. Interestingly, other things like infection go away with time. And you know this is this is you know this is very interesting, and um, probably reflects the immune you know the immune protection of this class of drugs. Something I'm commonly asked is, well, what about adding rituximab to ibrutinib? And there'll be more data on this at at, at Ash this year. But Jan Berger did a you know a randomized um, you know trial, randomized phase three trial of relapse CLL or those who are untreated with deletion 17P, where they just ask the simple question: If you add if you add rituximab to ibrutinib, do you change outcome? And the you know the you know the short answer to the question is no. There's no difference uh, between outcome. There's minimal. There's not a big difference between toxicity. And, and you might make the remission a little bit deeper, as you say, but you know, to, there's no clinical benefit of that. So this is really not something I recommend doing outside of the setting of uh, a clinical trial. Well, we talked about disc treatment discontinuation and why do patients discontinue you know, you know, therapy for CLL. And we've looked at this at Ohio State, where we've treated over, uh, in, in over uh, 500 CLL patients, and this was our first 300 patients. And as we as we're managing, and I find this graph helpful because as we're managing CLL, we sort of track out Richter's transformation, which we'll hear about later. All, we're all excited about the lecture, and you see that usually, it, usually most patients will develop Richter's within the first two years. Very uncommon after that. In black, we see the uh, success of, you know, we see that you know, true CLL progression virtually never happens before year one, and it continues over time. And again, this is not as this the look the you know the y-axis is not zero is, it, um, is not zero percent to one hundred percent. It's it's um, it's tempered, and we see other events which typically early on are infections, and later on are. You know, are you know, atrial fibrillation, other side effects that make the patients have to go off and go to another therapy. The outcome of patients is very, very different based upon this. You know, so if you get an infection early on ibrutinib, you know, you tend to do poorly, because, particularly in this our experience because they didn't have other options, they had to go off the trial. If you, know, you have an other event that's not an infection, you tend to do, you know, you know, you tend to do you know, well. CLL progression is sort of in the middle, and then Richter's is horrible, and that's you know as depicted in brown, and so it, it, the why people go off in the time frame is different. Well, what do we know about resistance to ibrutinib? And we know that about 80 percent of patients will you know in Rick was Rick and the team at Cornell and others. A lot of people work together in different papers to show that about. 80 to 85 percent of CLL patients that become resistant to ibrutinib with CLL, you know, the CLL outsmarts ibrutinib by mutating where the drug binds irreversibly. And in another five or seven percent, you get mutations in an immediate downstream target called PLC gamma 2. 
that allows you, you, you to bypass the signaling. So it really points to this pathway is important. In other forms of resistance, probably occur, they're not that common. When we look at early progression on CLL, you know, common, commonly asked, well, I get called with somebody progressing within the first year, and my qu first question is, did, does that patient have CLL? And then the second question is, you, know, you really need to be thinking about Richter's, because that really shows up early. Different pathogenesis than, than um, what's, you know, what's seen in CLL, but these mutations are quite rare, and we need to do a lot of work studying this. So what are some things that we do? We'll hear about, you know, we'll hear a little bit about uh, other strategies, but including uh, venetoclax, you know, which Dr. Furman's going to talk about, CAR T-cells work in this setting, and, uh, you know, you know, and uh, using reversible BTK inhibitors not depending on, dependent upon this site. But probably the biggest thing we can do is either prevent acquired resistance by giving combinations, and, and an approach that we're taking, because when patients truly become resistant, they're hard to treat if they don't, because you don't know they're going to respond, you have to stop the abrutinib. And so we monitor since 85, 80 to 85% of patients have a mutation that you can detect, and then we'll preemptively treat as part of clinical trials with new drugs, and we're, you know, we have trials you know, going with this. Well, what about combinations with ibrutinib? You know, the Captivate study um, combined ibrutinib with venetoclax, and this, was, this data was presented at ASCO, and, and it, this is very, very early, but essentially you, down, you give venetoclax, I'm sorry, you give ibrutinib for a period of time, for, for three months, and then you add venetoclax. And this is a 163-patient study. Um, it, main side effects were, you know, diarrhea, fatigue, you know, hypertension, and cytopenias. And importantly, 80 percent, you know, 80 percent of the patients at the extended time point where, where, where monitoring was available, where monitoring was done, were MRD negative. CR only occurred in 36 percent because you have small modes, lack of count recovery, and other things. We've, we've done a triple combination at OSU where we add obinutuzumab, and initially we give ibrutinib, and then we add venetoclax the third month. And these data, these data were just um, yeah, reported in blood, the phase one part, where, you know, again, a 92% overall response rate, 42% seeing a CR, a CRI. And these will be updated at, um, ASH, this, you know, at ASH this year. Well... What about developing a second-generation BTK inhibitor? Clearly, this is a, this is a good target, and ibrutinib does have several limitations. We we talked. You can go. You have to, some people will have adverse events. It, 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 the fact that it hits several targets, particularly with other kinase inhibitors, it's going to be difficult to challenge to to combine. And so, an alternative. The question was asked: Do we should we move forward with an alternative selective BTK inhibitor? And Acalabrutinib is one uh, one such agent, you know, that's much more selective than uh, you know than ibrutinib. It doesn't hit EGFR, it doesn't hit ITK, and uh, as shown here, and you know, say so, so, you know, it has very similar preclinical you know, properties as ibrutinib. It works in the TCL1 transgenic mouse model of CLL. It decreases B cell receptor signaling in CLL, and that prompted a big uh, phase one B two study. That you know, in you know, in CLL, 134 patients, and you know the demographics. You know the demographics are shown here. It's, you know again, most of these patients, most of these patients had less therapy than you know than the initial ibrutinib studies, but still a high risk group. And 
you know, so, you know, data that were updated last year at ASH shows, you know, so, you know, shows that this group, uh, this was a very active agent. You know, the progression-free survival in the untreated patients looks very, you know, looks very similar. I'm sorry. The, 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 the patients who don't have who don't have 17P or complex karyotype look very similar with patients doing well, and even that group, the 17P and complex karyotype, are doing well. The adverse events with this, uh, you know, in general, most people would say that this is this is has improved tolerance as compared to ibrutinib, although there's a randomized study that will test that. Um, how about in untreated patients? 74 patients went on to receive this. And you know, again, this was a you know this was a, a high risk group. This this trial did include 17P in contrast to the other one that we talked about. And you know, you know, you see the lymphocytosis. This peaks early, goes away probably a little bit earlier. Although it's difficult to compare this, and it really doesn't matter when the lymphocyte count goes away. You know, the response at untreated patients was 96%. And you know, and the data with this, you know, you know, there have been. Very, 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 you know, you know, you know, few progressions on this. The safety, uh, you know, the safety has been, you know, has been very good. You see diarrhea, arthralgias, you know, say AFib uh, is, as, you know, this, uh, this, there's been one case of AFib now on this, no cardiac deaths, uh, and overall a very well-tolerated regimen. There's a combination study of giving this with abinutuzumab was presented the first time this past year at ASH. This, this agent's behind in terms of doing combination studies. And you know, abinutuzumab uh, you know, was, you know, was given you know, together with acalabrutinib, again, in treatment naive and relapse and refractory, small numbers of patients, you know, and again, representative of, uh, you know, of um, you know, a patient group that we would treat. And we see the response is, uh, you know, you know, is very high. And, uh, you know, and we have a, a dribbling of CRs, and, you know, and some of these CRs are MRD negative. You know, so, so, you know, again, pointing to what we can see, you know, what we can see when we combine, uh, you know, particularly second-generation antibodies with these therapies. This looks at the progression-free survival. You know, and again, we see both groups are doing quite well. Uh, and, you know, say... And again, this is we're looking at phase two data. So, it's, uh, you know, this has also been looked at in ibrutinib tolerance, a 33 patient cohort. Um, and again, this was a heavily pretreated group, um, and most all patients had come off ibrutinib for to for one toxicity or another. Say these, uh, you see the adverse events, and even in this group that were predisposed to having toxicity, you know, nothing really, you know, nothing really stands out. This this looks at you know this looks at you know, the SAE that patients had and in 52% of the patients who went on acalabrutinib after coming off ibrutinib for an adverse event it did not occur in 24% it was less it was tolerable and, and in the other you know in the other 24% it didn't change. This looks at the progression for survival of this group and and they're doing okay you know say. Again, um, and so this represents an option that one can consider um, if patients are intolerant to ibrutinib. The variety of ongoing studies, a triple combination uh, of ibrutinib, venetoclax, and abinutuzumab is completed. There's a phase two study looking at this in, in, in ibrutinib intolerant patient that's company sponsored that's completed. And then the company's doing several phase three studies comparing it to carambacil and abinutuzumab. Um, and also, you know, to bendamustine rituximab or idolisib rituximab, 
and then there are multiple investigator-initiated studies with this. There are a variety of other BTK inhibitors in clinical trial that are not FDA approval. Xanubrutinib uh, is a more selective inhibitor that's being developed. There's good phase two data with this. It's in multiple phase three studies in upfront and relapse CLL. And then ONO, ONO, the ONO-GS4059, again, is a, is a irreversible inhibitor, good phase one data, you know, say, and whether it's going to be developed. And then there are a variety of re reversible BTK inhibitors that are being, you know, that are being tested. Uh, ARQ531 is probably the furthest along, and the senesis and the loxone molecule are coming behind. So the variety of questions uh, we've not really talked about ibrutinib versus standard chemoimmunotherapy. Go to ASH. There'll be a lot about this, you know, that, that answers this question. Does combination therapy improve outcome and allow discontinuation of ibrutinib? The cooperative group studies in the future are going to be answering this. Which BTK inhibitor do we build upon in terms of a reversible BTK inhibitor? Can we combine ibrutinib to prevent or ibrutinib or other BTK inhibitors with other targeted agents to prevent relapse? Are we giving the antibody in the right sequence? As I say, should we give it at the beginning? Should we let the immune system recover? How do we treat BTK-resistant disease? And will the reversible BTK inhibitors work when you, know, when you have the CIS41S mutation? Those are questions that we have. So I want to thank you for inviting me and apologize for going 50 seconds over. <laughs>